0: If you could please turn your Bibles to Philippians 3. Um, We're going to do verses 17 through 21. Um, Just a continuation of Philippians. And I do want to say what a wonderful job Pastor Ethan did last time he was in this text. I was challenged and blessed as we were driving back from our conference in Alabama. And so also thank you for your prayers. And I'm very excited to look into the word with you today. So let's go to Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of who I now have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. We come looking to you. Help us as we look into the scriptures that our hearts would be open and soft, that we could understand what it is that you are saying this morning. Help me as I preach, Lord, that it would not be my words, but your words which would shine through. We look to you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're finally finishing Philippians chapter 3, so praise the Lord. I am the youngest of three siblings. I have an older brother and an older sister. And they're not here, so I can say this, I love and admire them a lot. I probably should tell them that. (laughs) No, but they were older, even as a kid. Like, as a little kid, you don't want to admit that. But you end up listening to the music your older siblings end up listening to. You end up trying to hang out with their friends, mostly to their dismay, right? And to your chagrin. I never get to use the word chagrin, so I'm really excited. (laughs) Even to this day, the music that I listen to, sometimes the jokes that I tell, the way that I spend time, a lot of it is an imitation of my older siblings. And I still admire them. And I still respect them. And I still love them. I really should tell them that. Philippians is a letter written by the apostle to his friends. But in some way, it is a spiritual father to his spiritual children. It is an older brother to younger siblings. The church was established by Paul and nurtured by his ministry through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The love and affection between them is not lost in the letter. In some ways, it's his most visceral letter. Even in this verses that we looked at today, he tells them with tears. You see, his love and affection, it's an interesting picture of the emotional life of the apostle that's shared between him and his friends. One commentator named Philippian, the apostle and his friends. And today, the caring older brother looks to them and calls them to imitate him. To follow him and he gives them the reasons for doing so he explains the path and the walk that the Christians has in the context that the relationships that they share he was not distant he understood where they were coming from and he aims to encourage them to keep on the right path through three points which are different than what's in your outline but it was a last-minute change the first point is Be aware of who you imitate, verse 17. The second point is, beware of who you imitate, verses 18 and 19. And the third point, remember the one we imitate is the Savior, verses 20 through 21. And so we will hopefully see more clearly, what does it mean to walk as a Christian? And who should we imitate? And how does that impact us? So let's begin with the first point, be aware of who you imitate, verse 17, and it reads like this, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul begins by calling them brothers, again, emphasizing the the close relationship that is shared between them. Paul does not elevate himself over them, even though he's the aged apostle. He has, he's the example. He's the one who established the church, helped it to grow. He, his writings are read throughout Christendom, but yet he looks at them and says, brothers. He doesn't exalt himself above them. He doesn't pontificate from a distance, but he comes shoulder to shoulder while he's in prison and says, brothers. And it's important what he's about to say too. Because he's about to give them two commands. And it's not like when people do a compliment sandwich, where they give you a compliment, and then they give you the heart thing, and then they give you another compliment. I don't know if Paul was doing that. I don't think so. But he genuinely means brothers. And then he gives them two commands, and they are, join in and keep your eyes. The first command, some translate as join, and it might be if you have the ESV, but a much simpler and clearer verb is be a wooden translation would be y'all be imitators of me the word here for imitate only happens once in the entire writing that we can find and it is in this letter paul made up this word he didn't make up the word to imitate there's a word for that but he combined two words to say together be imitators so that means i can also make up words (laughs) i'm kidding I'm not going to make up words. But Paul made up a word to command the Philippians to imitate him and do it together. In Philippians, there's always a unity. There's always a humility. There's always an awareness of other people. And I believe that Paul is using this construction again to emphasize the unity that is shared between the Philippians. It is not that he has done everything perfectly either. Pastor Ethan preached on that. And it's earlier in Philippians, he says, not that I am already made perfect. He doesn't say, imitate me, because I got it all together. He doesn't say, imitate me, because I know exactly what to do. But while in prison, the humble apostle looks to those whom he love and says, imitate me, because I press on forward to grab a hold of Christ, because Christ has a hold on me. Paul is telling the Christians at Philippi to remember the manner of his life. Paul, writing from prison, is not calling the Philippians to be mechanical. He's not trying to make them carbon copies of himself. Paul, in other writing, recognizes the differences that people have, even with gifts. He writes in Corinthians how we're all a part of the body with different gifts and different skills and different subsets of interests, But he does call them to live a sacrificial, gospel-centered life that focuses on Christ and exalts him alone. So first, they are not carbon copies. Also, Paul is not saying that by their behavior they are saving themselves. Rather, the argument of Philippians and the Pauline epistles is because you have been saved. Let that be shown in your manner of life. Believing the gospel which is freely offered in Jesus Christ does not mean that the way we live does not matter. Rather, it is the gospel of our Savior and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit impacting our lives is how we see growth. So Paul, in commanding them to be imitators, but not only of him, And that's where we get into the second command. The the first command is really, be imitators of me. But the second command is, keep your eyes. And I'll read it again. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. They are to keep their eyes on those that walk in the example that they saw in the apostle. First, it is that they should keep their eyes fixed. There is a certain awareness in the language. Um, When somebody's about to hit something in Spanish... You just go, oh, oh, oh. like it, we just start yelling the word for I like, like, you know, look, look, at, look at where you're going. That's what we're saying. And Paul, in some way, is telling them that he's saying, keep your eyes. What are you looking at and who are you looking to and what are you following? But it's not just keep your eyes on yourselves, but on others and how they walk. And again, it's not focused on people that are perfect, since Paul just said that he himself was not perfect, but on people, again, that as we spoke last time on Philippians, are mature and keep their eyes fixed on the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. That's why the language is used of walking. Paul, immersed in the Hebrew scriptures, uses a word that's often used of godly people in the Old Testament. Abraham walked with God. Enoch Walked with God. Who are you looking to and how is their walk? That's what Paul is saying. In Philippians 1, Paul commended those who, in the midst of persecution and hardship, remain steadfast to the gospel in the midst of external pressures. In chapter 2, he commended those who remain humble and sacrificial in the midst of internal tensions. At the end of chapter 2, he gives the example of two people, Epaphroditus and Timothy, who love them and care for them. In chapter 3, he gives the examples of those that rejoice in Christ and keep their eyes focused on him and also watch their doctrine. What he's saying is the walk of those people of integrity who not only talk the talk but walk the walk those are the ones you are meant to imitate. The language of imitation sometimes bristles people the wrong way. It might be bristling you the wrong way. Because part of it is, the way that we hear it is, why can't you be like so-and-so? Why can't you be like your cousin? They went to Northwestern. Why can't you be like your uncle? He has it all together. Why can't you do it like me? I do it right. But that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not just standing there and being like, just do it like I do. Just do it the way I do it. In some ways he is, right? But that's not his tone. He wants to make them aware that we all imitate somebody. And people Can usually tell who you've been hanging out with when I got home as a kid and I was being bad my mom could tell I was hanging out with bad kids people can tell who you've been hanging out with so this specific passage might make you uncomfortable because you think that what it's saying is that you're simply not good enough and if you only did it like so-and-so you would be better we might bristle and ask Why does Paul not say, I should imitate Christ, or imitate me as I imitate Christ? And he does do that in Corinthians, but here he says, imitate me. Why? Imitating the good behavior of other Christians is not a bad thing. It doesn't save you, but imitating good behavior is not a bad thing. We might not like the idea of imitating because we think that we lose some aspect of ourselves. But again, Paul is not saying to just become a carbon copy of other people. We are all made in the image of God and we are all unique to God. He knows us each differently and in our individual gifts. In the Bible, it says he knows all the hairs on your head. He weaved us together in our mother's wombs, and he was there when we opened our eyes, and he will be there when we close them. We are unique to God, and he still calls us to imitate. Why? Healthy discipleship relationships and a good church culture should nurture individual gifts. The behavior that Paul is commending in this letter is the gracious, sacrificial, gentle, humble, truthful character that shines through those that have been impacted by the gospel. We should not all talk the same or teach the same, but we all have the same Savior. So we have similarities. And again, it does not mean that we are perfect. One of my favorite quotes by a Puritan is, it only takes a few grapes to know it's a vine and not a thorn. And I tell myself, at least I got a few grapes. (laughs) It only takes a few grapes. You might actually love the idea of imitating others and being imitated. But even then, it's the motive in which we do it that is important. The pushback might be that imitating, we are tempted to treat people as saviors. But that is not imitation, that's worship. We might say to ourselves, that person did it right. And if I just do it like they do, I can have the same life, the same maturity, the same kids, the same job. That's what I want. And so we worship them. We might not say it like that, but that's what we do. We might also think, why can't they do it like I do? I'm right and they're wrong. Just do it better. But Paul is pointing them to Christ and to run with him. Paul began by saying, brothers. So even if we disciple other people, it is not this overbearing, forceful, arrogant relationship, but a humble, gracious teaching and leading. Regardless of the differences in age, education, stature, or finances, we are all gathered here as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you stand redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The only one worshipped here is Jesus. It is not your elders. It is not your pastors. It's Jesus. There is only one mediator of the covenant. Yet the fact remains that there are those who are a little farther down along the journey. And it's good to learn from others. That does not make them superior. But the way in which our good Lord and Savior instituted for our growth is within the church and it's within community and it's within those that know more than we do. So let us be humble and learn from one another. I have much to learn about many things. I need help. I am humbled by the wonderful people of our church. And I want to learn from you. Let us grow together. Let us learn from each other. And humbly admit that there are those that know more than we do about certain things. Everybody knows something. So that's the first thing. Be aware of who you imitate. The second thing is, beware of the wrong imitation. And that's verses 18 through 19. And I'll read it again. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with set on earthly things. The passage continues in an interesting note. It kind of makes a sharp turn. He, know, he goes from talking about who they should imitate who, to whom they definitely should not imitate, right? He tells them, even with tears, there are many tempting counterexamples in the city of Philippi. The people who he talks about are those who walks, walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. And through a tear-stained ladder, he continues the language of walking or living there are choices in how you shall live and there he warns them against the wrong kind of living, the wrong kind of imitation. But he says, the enemies of the cross of Christ. Why doesn't he just say the enemies of Christ? He does not name the people specifically, but considering the context of the whole letter, it is not, it is not those who diverge theologically only, but ethically. Meaning, That it is those who might call themselves Christians, but are unwilling to bear the implications of that name. They walk not as those who embrace the cross of Christ, but as those who scorn it. They wouldn't call themselves the enemies of Christ, but they are certainly the enemies of his cross. And what does that mean? They are offering a counterexample to Paul, who is suffering for the sake of the name. It was those that in antithesis to Paul were unwilling to embrace the cross in their daily living. Whose life did not have that gospel tincture as they were unwilling to bear the loss and count the cost. Those who are unwilling to bear with suffering for the sake of the cross. Not that they save themselves, but Paul even earlier says that I may share in his sufferings and in his resurrection. It is those that are walking or living opposite to the way of the cross. This idea of the enemies of the cross of Christ is further explained in verse 19, and he does it with four qualifiers. First, those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ walk a path of destruction. Their end is their destruction. In an interesting note, because they, in aiming to avoid all suffering, they go down a path of greater suffering. In aiming to avoid all hardship, they set themselves on the wrong path Because to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to be an enemy in essence to what Christ has done. To not embrace him. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. That's what we see in Philippians 2. So in aiming to avoid all suffering, they set themselves down on a path of destruction. And it continues with the next qualifier. Those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ worship their appetites. The reason is because their God is not Christ, but their belly They have no concept of self-control or self-limitation. Their only mode of operation is to satisfy their own hearts and their own desire to do what makes them happy. Their path is just what makes them feel good and pleasure becomes the highest priority. The third qualifier follows that train of thought. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ glory in their shame. The desire to avoid hardship has led them towards destruction and towards disordered desires. This disorder leads them to revel on those things which are not appropriate, since their mode of operation is only that which is pleasurable to them. If it gives them pleasure, they are willing to glory in it. Pleasure becomes the ultimate goal. But this goal leads them down what Paul calls a shameful path. Because unhindered desires consume you. They celebrate things which they should not. They boast about things which are shameful, but they would not be limited. And so it ends with the final qualifier, saying that those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ have their eyes on earthly things. And it's important to pause here. Because earthly doesn't just mean physical. Paul is about to talk about the physical resurrection. There is a difference between the two statements here. This is not saying physical things are bad. This is not saying that if you have a house or a good meal or a family that loves you, that's bad and you shouldn't think about those things. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, he's saying that their eyes are so fixed on, them, on those things that they lose perspective of the bigger picture. The warning comes full circle. They avoid all suffering. So they inadvertently aim their lives to destruction, where they aim to meet all their desires without hindrance, which leads them to disordered appetites and skewed perspectives. This is the dangerous example that is threatening Philippi. And again, it's not that physical things are bad, because there is a real and bodily resurrection, and Jesus himself came back. He was born, and he still has a physical body, even in heaven. But there is a comfort and holiness in these words. First, the comfort has to be explained. Because you might look at me and say, there's no comfort here. You may hear what I'm saying as, all you should do is suffer. And your whole life is morose and disagreeable. But that's not what I'm saying. And that is certainly not comforting. So let us state what we do know. First... Paul calls us to avoid something, and then he calls us to embrace something. And in there is the comfort. What does Paul call us to avoid? He calls us to avoid a life that avoids all suffering. The reason is that in aiming to have no hardship in our lives, we may be tempted as well as they were to deny the gospel of our Savior Those are the tempting examples we have today in our day as well. That we may be foolishly tempted to think that to be a Christian means that you never bear a loss. We see that most explicitly in the prosperity gospel proponents. But even in our own lives, that can subtly creep in. In other words, the right path can be the hardest. The easiest path is often tempting. But we should not live under the delusion that the best things are always the easiest. We cannot live our lives to avoid all suffering. That's what we're warned against, to live our lives in order to avoid pain. So if we are to avoid running from pain, what are we called to embrace? And how is this comforting? And here is where it gets tricky. The human heart is deceitful, so when you hear that we should not live our lives to avoid pain, we're tempted to pendulum swing and think the opposite way. The way that we live our lives is to avoid all pleasure, but that's not what Paul is saying. Or that we live in our lives to revel in suffering, so that now what we do is we live our lives to suffer. Again, that's not what he's saying. We go from avoiding all pain to avoiding all pleasure, But here again, we are missing the aim of the scriptures and the apostle. What we are called to embrace is not a life devoid of pleasure or pain. What we are called to embrace is Jesus Christ. That regardless of the pain and the pleasure, he is with his people. It is his cross which we must must not disdain. And it is his joy, as it began in chapter 3, which sustains us. Later, we must learn the secret of contentment. That whether in plenty or in want, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's what Paul says later. There is no pain in this world which lasts forever and through which God will not carry us through. And there is no pleasure in this world which will compare to the greater joy to come. And so we can embrace pain in this life and we can embrace pleasure because we don't live for either we live for christ it is his footsteps that we follow that's our comfort but there is a, grow, a call to greater holiness what path are you walking we do not fix our eyes our suffering or pleasure let us fix our eyes on jesus let us not despise his cross who although being the second person of the trinity Willingly went, was born, and died for us. And in the garden, while he prayed before that faithful hour, he sweated blood. Let us run to Christ in repentance. Let us walk the path of sorrow and cling to the cross of Christ. Let us not embrace our sins, but cling to Jesus. It is also important to note that the Bible does not teach the hatred of all pleasure. It is not as if enjoying a good meal is inherently sinful. We are affected by sin in such a way that our desires become corrupted and we desire the wrong things or desire the right things in the wrong ways. However, the calling of the Christian is not to hate pleasure, but rather the calling of the Christian is to follow Christ and that puts boundaries on our pleasure, but we are called to follow Christ. John Calvin put it like this, to despise the gift is to disdain the giver. To hate the good gifts in family, rest, and simple joys does not make you more Christ-like. Loving Jesus makes you more Christ-like, right? To not sleep does not make you more godly. Loving God, walking with him, right? To not call your family does not make you more godly. Loving Jesus does. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ brings us joy in the way we interact with one another. An old Scottish minister said it like this Some Christians walk around as if they have been sanctified by vinegar, as if being a Christian is in itself a deep and irredeemable sorrow. But even the apostle in his hardships was comforted by others and by God. We can enjoy God's good gifts in their proper order. And avoiding those gifts does not make us more godly. So then, if that is what we're called to embrace, Jesus. What are we called to avoid? And what is the direction of our lives? And we go to verse 20 and 21. Remember, the one we imitate is the Savior. And I'll read him again. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It continues in an interesting manner. It goes not only from reminding them whom they follow but their very citizenship. Their flow of thought is then this. Imitate those who have Christ of Christ-centered example. Do not... uh, Imitate those who avoid all suffering, right? Because we belong to Christ who is in heaven and will return. Our citizenship for those in Christ Jesus is in heaven. And from there, that's what Paul says, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of Philippi were Roman citizens, and it was hard earned. The city had been destroyed and been rebuilt by Roman citizens. They were loyal to Rome and valued their position highly. For them, it was a real cost to be associated with Jesus. Because they had to say that they had one Lord. But because they are citizens of a heavenly city, their life is hidden in Christ Jesus. And so, they wait for the Savior. The Savior here, emphasizing the redemptive work of Christ. To save a people for himself. We may be tempted because our citizenship is in heaven. Again, to hate all things physical. To emphasize what the apostle is not just sustaining all things physical. He talks about the physical resurrection. He clarifies that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body by his appearing. And as we talked a few weeks ago, and even two weeks ago, the resurrection is real. Lest we think that all things physical are evil, he reminds them that our bodies, this very body, will be raised up and transformed. And although lowly now and subject to disease and decay, one day we will rise and our bodies will be like his glorious body. And those who have fallen asleep will rise too. The resurrection is real and that's what he reminds them of the reason that we cannot say that all physical things are inherently evil is because the Lord Jesus Christ took to himself a human nature which means that he had a reasonable soul and a real body Jesus at the end of John is not just a spirit but has a real body with real scars and he has real food and someday he will call out and the dead will rise it's not just a fairy tale But we all must and will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We will rise. Why talk about the fact that we will rise? Because as the master shall the servant be. That in this life we might have many troubles. And we might have many joys. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. And someday these light and momentary troubles will be awash. And we will be in the glory of the resurrection. That we follow Christ in his sufferings, but we follow him in his glory. The story does not end here. We will someday wake in glory. So let us remember we imitate the Savior, we walk in his footsteps and as the master shall the servant be he says if they hated you, if they hated me they will hate you but that's not an excuse to be mean the way of our savior is confronting but it's gracious and humble so let us walk in his footsteps one of my favorite verses in the bible is in acts 4 the Pharisees are confronting the apostles after a miracle because they don't want them to teach the name of Jesus. And so they began to press them. These men who had betrayed Jesus just a few chapters earlier had turned away from him and ran in the hour of his greatest need after the resurrection were emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And after the Pharisees confront them, there's this beautiful verse and it says, Now, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They could tell who they had been with. The truth of the matter is, people can tell who you've been hanging out with. And I pray that for myself and for us. I don't want people to be impressed with how much I know or how well I explain things, how well I can put things together or how talented I am, although that is some of the requirements of my office. Those are nice. But first, I want people to walk away and say, there's a man who walked with Jesus. And when people visit us, I want them to say, now. They had been with Jesus. People can tell who you've been hanging out with. Let us be aware of who we imitate. Beware of who we imitate. And remember that we imitate a Savior who is coming back. And we will rise. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day, and we look to you. The one who strengthens your people. The one who blesses. Lord, we come even in repentance saying that there are times where we do not watch our walk well. Where we're more tempted to imitate what we see on TV or social media or other people. When we're tempted to compare But, Lord, we fix our eyes on you. Help us, Lord, to follow in your footsteps. Help us, Lord, to humbly learn from one another, to learn from those whom you have gifted. We look to you and you alone, Jesus. You know our sorrows and our joys. You know our celebrations and our mournings. And even as it says at the end of Matthew, Lord, you promise that you would be with us always to the very end of the age We are your people. And so we look to you. Help us. Strengthen us. Walk with us. Guide us. Feed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.